podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome back to the pod. It's Thursday. Thank you for joining us. I want to tell you a story. Can I do an intro to this one? It it might take me a little while. Hang with me here. Over the Christmas break, I decided to shut the old laptop, get off the email completely, take a bunch of walks, do a bit of a digital detox, and it was glorious. It really was. I started to defrag a lot of things in my mind. It made me think, I got to do this a lot more. I was making lists getting organized, especially about how I felt about my goals, my life, January, whatever. And that was amazing. And and during that time, I earmarked a few things to read and to listen to. And I don't remember why, but one was this podcast called Tangentially Speaking. And that is run by a guy named Christopher Ryan, who recently released a new book called Civilized to Death. And I also had that book on my reading list. And so I pick up this book and I'm like, man, I just tore right through it. And the audiobook version is excellent. But Chris is perhaps best known for his 2010 book, Sex at Dawn. And I want to talk a little bit about why I find these books so fascinating and and thought-provoking. It's partially because this topic that he gestures towards in both books was the first idea that I encountered in my life that truly rocked me intellectually. That was when I was in high school. I picked up this book called The Story of Bee by Daniel Quinn. And the thesis of the book is essentially, look, every story you've ever heard, every history you've ever read, every person you've ever met is actually part of one monoculture. It started 15,000 years ago. It's strange. It's weird. It's very divergent from the way humans lived for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years upon the planet. And this is a big deal. And there's a tons of implications to this, but no one, you know, walking around day to day really think you think, oh, you know, a Chinese person's totally different from an American person. And the idea in the story of B and a lot of these books that are related are like, well, actually you're part of the same culture. And I was just totally rocked by this idea. And since that time, I've tried to pick up any book I could get on the topic, and just allow my mind to explore the potential implications of an idea so very big. I mean, one of the practical ones that's come to light over the past few decades has been the paleo diet. So this idea that, look, like things, we took a hard right turn as humanity 15,000 years ago when agriculture was developed. All the major religions that we know about today were developed, and everything changed. And might we learn something by going back and doing more what we evolved to do or more what other types of of humans did? Recently, there was a book called Sapiens, a fantastic book talking about the same idea. So anyway, this is a long, winding way to say any book about this kind of stuff I'm totally into. And Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death explore different elements of the implications of this one enormous idea. You know, what if civilization doesn't represent progress? And the implications for for me as an entrepreneur, I think, are enormous too, because frankly, it gives me a space for personal freedom to be different. That 
people in the past weren't like people today. And that means that normal might not be normal. And that might mean that you don't have to be normal. And I think that's part of the reason that these books attracted me so much. So today we're going to talk about two things though. We're going to talk about the ideas in the book later on in the episode, but I wanted to start with Chris's story because he's one of us. He's managed to live cheaply, write for a living, piece together an interesting life and career through a variety of different ways, all the while traveling a great deal. I'm sure Chris's story will resonate with those of you who've balked at the conventional path. Chris's journey started with a hitchhiking trip to Alaska, which inspired him to eschew a normal career and kicked off a decade-long meander through Asia and Europe, largely supporting himself by teaching English. That's where I'll let him pick up the story. And teaching English was okay, but I realized like I'm not, you know, I saw other people who were living in Barcelona teaching English. They were 50, 55 years old. And it's like, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 55, you know? So I knew I wanted to do something with my mind. And what happened was I went to a place called Findhorn in Scotland, which is famous for it's like where people started talking to plants and playing music for plants and all this sort of magical relationship with plant intelligence and all that. And I wanted to check it out. And when I was there, I met some people who were essentially like just really smart kind of bohemian types, but they had PhDs in psychology. I didn't know that was possible. I always thought a PhD in psychology meant behavioral psychology, like you had to like study rats in a maze or something. I didn't realize you could get a PhD in psychology focusing on Jungian archetypes or, you know, sexuality or, you know, sort of transcultural issues, which is what really interested me. So I came away from that thinking, okay, I could get a PhD in psychology and it wouldn't close doors. I, I never wanted to do things that closed more doors than it opened, you know? Like give you a specific role you'd have to play. Right. Limit you to, okay, now you're this, yeah. you know, and you can't do anything else. I always wanted to do things that kept my options open. That was around the time of Bill Clinton's blowjob. I was really confused, like, because my understanding was that men seek power and wealth in order to impress women. Like that's the main thing. Because once you have enough wealth to take care of your needs, who needs more? Like why would you continue to invest your time and energy in more and more and more when you've got enough? A surprisingly difficult question to answer. It is. And the, the sort of stock answer is, well, men do this to increase status and the status is used to impress women, and then it increases your mating success, and therefore these genes get propagated and so on. At the time, I was in a bookstore, and I saw a book called The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. It was about evolutionary psychology, which was sort of a new science at the time. And it was mind-blowing, because it seemed to explain everything. Basically, the thesis was that men and women have differing and not only differing, but actually opposing reproductive agendas. And so we're locked into this war between the sexes. It's innate. There's no escaping it. Men went, want to spread their seed, and women have their very expensive 
ova and they have a very limited number. And so the investment, minimum parental investment is very high for women and very low for men, right? And that is sort of spun out into this explanation for why men want sex and women don't and why women are looking for a provider and men are just looking for fertility and all these sorts of things. I read this book and I was like, this is fucking great. This explains everything. And I started telling all my friends about this. And at the time I was living with a woman who was a stripper and a lot of her friends were strippers they're like smart. A lot of them are lesbians. They're in grad school. They're feminists. And so I sort of like told them this whole thing, like, hey, this explains everything. And they're like, yeah, that sounds like a very Victorian male understanding of sexuality. Like, I remember one of the women saying, Chris, like, we don't have sex to get things. We have sex because it feels good. The same reason you do. The only reason we convert our sex into money is because we're forced to. You know, look at women in history. You guys had all the jobs. You had all the power. You had everything. And and what did we have, right? So I started looking at it from that perspective and thinking, you know, these they have a point. And so I went back and I looked at the source material that he was using in the book. And I started finding all this stuff, like bonobos. I didn't know what a bonobo was. Nobody talked about bonobos. Nobody yeah. talked about bonobos. So I, I looked up bonobos and it's like, wait a minute. Here's So we've got chimps and bonobos are both our closest re- relations in the apes, equally relevant to any discussion of human nature. We hear about chimps all the time, how violent they are and male dominant and blah, blah, blah. I've never heard of bonobos. Why aren't they talking about bonobos? Well, maybe it's because they're female dominant. Maybe it's because they're very peaceful. Maybe it's because they have sex with each other indiscriminately and nobody knows which male fathered which offspring, which totally undercuts this argument that men are obsessed with women's sexuality in order to be assured of their paternity. Because if you don't know those are your kids, why would you invest in them? Investment being status, meat, protection, and so on in a primordial environment, right? And so I I looked at this and I was like, wait a minute. And then I looked at the anthropology and, oh, there are these tribes that believe that several different men can be the fathers of one child, partable paternity. Well, that also undercuts this argument. And there are the Moswo in in southern China who say that the biological father has no responsibility whatsoever for the child. The child's raised by the, the mother and her brothers. Well, that doesn't fit the argument either. So there are all these counterexamples. Was there a moment when you like looked up from the books and you looked around the stacks or whatever and you're like, Oh, yeah. I think I'm all Definitely. It here. felt like I was... Like I was looking at this tapestry and there was a loose thread and I went to pull the thread out and suddenly the whole tapestry started falling apart right in front of me. And I was like, okay, hold on now. This looks like a bunch of bullshit propaganda, not science. This looks like like a bunch of people agreeing with each other in order to support their cultural bias to support this paternalistic argument for why men are sort of, you know, nature designed men to control women. But I'm not seeing the evidence here. When I look at the evidence, I see lots of counterexamples, way too many counterexamples for them to be exceptional. 
Well, my first thought was, I want to know more about this. So what if I do my PhD thesis about this, right? That'll give me an opportunity to really dig into this information a little bit. So that's what I did my dissertation about. It was challenging the Darwinian view of human sexual evolution or something like that. And so when I was writing that, I would give it to my committee and they would mark it up. And I remember my academic background was literature. So, and I sort of fancied myself a pretty good writer. And so when I was writing it, I would have fun and I would, you know, make jokes or just be a little playful with the language. And I remember one of the professors crossed out everywhere that I was playful, just crossed it out and in the margin wrote, save it for the book. Hmm. And I thought, you, man. I'm just trying to have fun here. I'm trying to make this readable. But then later I thought, huh, yeah, he's got a point. It could be a book. This could be, if I'm right about this, it could be... How old are you at this time? 30, early to mid-30s. I finished the PhD and, you know, I had in mind, like, that could be a book. That could be a book. But I don't know how to write a book. And I don't know anyone who writes books. I don't know any literary agents. I don't know how publishing works. My wife and I, I met Casilda at that time, who's a psychiatrist from Mozambique. She Some stuff happened in our personal life that allowed us to sort of take a year and go travel. So I came to Asia with her, to Thailand. And we did a, a year backpacking through Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, then we went to India. So the whole time I was sort of thinking like, yeah, it could be a book, it could be. And I was sort of trying to fill in my knowledge in areas where I didn't, I felt I didn't know enough. For three years or so, I read papers and I got on these like bulletin boards online where evolutionary scientists were debating topics and you know, sexuality bulletin board. So I could sort of like lurk in the conversations between the experts. Yeah. And then, you know, gingerly I would say, mm, what about this? And see what they said. So I had a chance to test out some stuff. I was playing poker with some friends and I lost all my money. I was in the kitchen talking with my friend's wife and she had worked in publishing and she was like, what are you doing? What are you working on? I said, well, I'm this book thing, I've been thinking, like maybe this could be a book. And she's like, well, you should find an agent. And there are some websites that list literary agents. And just look for an agent who's sold popular science books and pitch them. You write a one-page thing, a query letter. And she sort of told me how it worked. And I went home that night, and I went online, and I found a website, which I don't know if it still exists. It was called predators and editors and it listed all these hundreds of literary agents i found 20 literary agents who had published popular nonfiction, who accepted email queries i put together a brief query letter and i figure i'll send this to these 20 agents and they'll all say no and maybe one or two of them will say i think you need more of this or more of that or you know you should look into this maybe you know and i'll refine it and it'll maybe a year from now i'll find someone who is willing to help and sees a possibility here so i sent those out it was a thursday night by monday morning 18 of them had offered to represent me it was insane 
my whole life changed that weekend. How did the book do? Sexaton? Great. It's in 20-some languages and was a New York Times bestseller. And it, yeah, it's, it's still selling. So you came out on the other side with a different life, I guess. Oh, totally different. It yeah. seems to me like not only was the book popular, but it resonated with a lot of like powerful people. You, Yeah, I mean, Dan Savage really... Just wanted to cut in with a little bit of information about Dan Savage. For those of you who don't know, he's an author, pundit, journalist, LGBT community activist, and he's really famous for the sex advice column called Savage Love, which is internationally syndicated and, and one of the most well-known in the world. Dan ended up looking at the book and enjoyed it, and it also corresponded with his sense of human sexuality, which is that we're not naturally monogamous, which is why it's so hard for us. And it's a decision you make, but it's a decision that goes against, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary trajectory. So it's not to say that it's not possible. It is possible. I, I often say it's like vegetarianism. You can choose to be a vegetarian and that can be a really good choice for your health, for your ethical, for lots of different reasons. But just because you've decided to be a vegetarian doesn't mean bacon doesn't smell good anymore. <laughs> so yeah, it did really well and, and is still doing very well. And it changed my life. Yeah, radically. I went from teaching English for 20 euros an hour or whatever it was to giving a Ted talk and, you know, being interviewed by the BBC and like, boom, crazy. And so, you know, and then that led to meeting Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell and, uh, you know, becoming sort of a honorary member of the comedian community in LA. And did having this kind of success change your attitude to work? Did it put pressure on you to do more? It might have put pressure on me, but it didn't change my attitude. You might notice that my second book came out nine years after the first book. <laughs> <laughs> and believe me, the contract wasn't a nine-year contract. I blew past a lot of deadlines. You know, getting back to this question before, like if you have enough, why would you keep sacrificing life in order to have more stuff? I've never understood that, and I still don't understand that. So when Sex at Dawn hit, you know, it wasn't like millions of dollars or anything, but, uh, you know, a couple thousand bucks a month started. Stuff you don't need to work for, it just comes in. Well, I've already done the work, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like an investment that's just paying and paying and paying. And so Casilda quit her job. We moved to Vancouver, then we moved to Portland, then we moved to LA, then you know, we traveled around. I mean, we burned the money. We could have <laughs> bought property or done something smart with it, but <laughs> we didn't because life is short. Yeah, we enjoyed it and it led to the podcast. And so now, you know, my main gig is the podcast. But, you know, lazy is a difficult word. I'm very suspicious of ambition because my sense is that ambition is generally a concept that's used to get people to do things against their own interests, like patriotism, I think is also a similar kind of tool. How do people use ambition to, to control others? Well, you know, where's your work ethic? You should be getting up early and you should come to work and you should work hard and you should be happy that you're getting the 11 bucks an hour I'm paying you with no health care and no days off and three sick days per year 
Because I tell you, there are a lot of people who don't have this opportunity. And the fact that I'm making $300,000 a year off your labor and paying you $25,000, it's none of your f***ing business. Yeah. Just get back to work. You know, work ethic. What is work? Work is doing something you would rather not do. That's work. Hunter-gatherers don't have that concept. You know, I talked about this in Civilized to Death. The idea that you do something you don't want to do, why would you do that? It feels like the book was a little bit something you didn't want to do. But, you know, you mentioned Sex at Dawn was a funny book. Civilized to Death is not, I loved it, but it's not a happy book. It it seems like the message is tough. It is tough. And, And one of the reasons that book took so long to finish is that I kept vacillating between two different books that I was trying to write at the same time. And it was like I had a foot on an ice flow and a foot on the shore and the ice flow kept moving further and further away. And like, I have to pick where am I going to be here? It seems like the book you ended up with was something like the paleo diet for life. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. When I pitched the book, it was going to be, actually it was more like the paleo diet for life. The <laughs> The book I, I told them I would write that they paid me to write was going to be more like Here's what life was really like in prehistory. So that part remained in this, you know, the sort of reassessment of what we know about prehistoric human life. And then here are the things we can take from that to enrich our own lives. That's all there. But then there's this overlay of like, is civilization a mistake? Yes. That was the other book. And that's the hard part. That's the hard part. And, and yet, that's the part that motivated me to keep writing. It's a polemic, right? Yeah, like, definitely. It's a polemic. And it's painful. I'm watching what's happening in the world. The shit is hitting the fan. There's a line in there I'm kind of proud of where I said, like, <laughs> it's too late to get your shit together when it's already hit the fan. Something like that, you know? Like, we have passed points of no return already. You see what's going on in Australia as we speak. People are being evacuated by sea. The world, the natural world is falling apart, and it's because civilization is just too much. Now, again, like I mentioned at the top, I think the reason that the book Civilized to Death resonated with me so much is that I, too, am suspicious of elements of our society and elements of civilization, and I feel uncomfortable with them. And so it often feels strange to question these things because so many people accept them as natural, as human nature. And it's books like Civilized to Death and my earlier reading of Daniel Quinn's story of B and Ishmael, um, which sort of poke holes at this idea that maybe there are other ways to live. Maybe we can look back to find more sustainable ways of living. So then you have On the Use and Abuse of History and the Genealogy of Morals by Nietzsche. And then my anxiety increased. And then I read The Question Concerning Technology and Being in Time, Heidegger. He would go back, do these kind of like pastoral glorifications of pre-technology, this kind of stuff. Mm. Then On the History of Sexuality, Volume 2, and Discipline and Punish by Foucault. And then this famous little book, it's famous just in academia, but I don't know if you've heard the structure of scientific revolutions. Kuhn, yeah. Yeah. And then a few modern authors, 
or contemporary rather, What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly, Sapiens, uh-huh. and then Anti-Fragile. Oh, yeah, great. I love Anti-Fragile. So, well, I love the idea of Anti-Fragile. The book got a little repetitive for me. But. <laughs> I was kind of waiting for this book, and it, it would also ha- allow me to return to these ideas because I've been feeling a growing discomfort. In some ways, you know, being middle-aged, there's like a, a lack of cues of there's a whole host of cues of like what to do with your life if you stick to the plan. And I spent most of my adult life getting out of the plan. Right. And now it's less clear. I feel like it's hard for me to find guideposts, you know? Why did you write it though? If it was so hard, just because they paid you money and you said you would or. Yeah. I mean, that was part of it. And that's also one of the things that made it hard because I felt a sense of obligation And the other thing, I made a mistake in that I let the wave, you know, for me, there's like, I get an idea and I want to explore it and I want to share it. And if I catch the wave, as I did with Sex at Dawn, I can ride it right into the beach, you know? And with Civilized to Death, it was like, I had the idea, I wanted to explore it, I wanted to explain it and share it. But I was doing other things because Sex at Dawn had enough of an impact that I was, I'm still doing interviews about Sex at Dawn. So I was distracted by other stuff. I was having fun because I was invited to go to Australia and speak at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And I was, you know, I met all these interesting people and they're inviting me here and there and do this and do that. And so life became really kind of lots of opportunities and dude, you know, I I hadn't had those sorts of opportunities and, and I wanted to take advantage of them because I don't know how long they're going to be around. I don't know. Yeah. So I could stay home and work or I could, you know, go hang out on my friend's yacht in the Sea of Cortez for 10 days. Fuck yeah, I'm going to the Sea of Cortez. So it was just like, ah, when am I going to get to it? I don't know. I'll get to it. Well, it's also not a book about timely things. So it's not like you need to get it out next year. I mean... Well, also, I I kind of feel like a lot of the things the book is about are more urgent now than they were two or three years ago. So maybe the timing's better because of of the delay. You know, I have a hunter-gatherer approach to work. Like, I work in order to get the things I need so that I can live my life. Yeah. And to me, money and you know, fame or, you know, these sort of external indicators of success, whatever that is, are only valuable in as much as they connect to me to quality people and allow me time to hang out with people I want to hang out with. That's all I really care about. So if I never write another book, it's fine with me, as long as I still get to hang out with cool people and have good conversations and friendships. You wrote once to somebody responding, basically like, how do we respond to civilization? What are some points of resistance or ways to live the good life in in civilization? And you said, get your closest friends together and move to a small town where you can be neighbors and help raise each other's kids, have dinner together and share tools. Love that idea. How does that jibe with the travel life? Because there is this yin and yang or whatever. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, the kind of like nomad life is like good until it isn't. 
no one's around anymore. Like I didn't really have the friends and dinner all night, you know, but then you're with the friends and dinner on the other hand and you're like, I'm pretty bored of my friends. I'm pretty bored of this dinner. So what do you think about that dichotomy? Well, you know, I think there's a reason there are seasons, you know, in, in most countries (laughs) and I like seasons and I like change within constancy. And, you know, my whole life has been movement and stasis and movement and stasis. I think that's the way to go. I think, you know, you, you let yourself get hungry before you eat. That's the way you enjoy food. That's better for your body, you know, like intermittent fasting, let's say, you know, take intermittent fasting and apply it to other aspects of your life. Yeah. So work too. work, sex, food, alcohol, you know, whatever it is, exercise, whatever it is, that seems to be the way things work best. So how I would apply that philosophy is if you can set up that kind of a life for yourself where you're with friends and you take care of each other and you have that sort of consistency and you get old together and you raise each other's kids and all that stuff. But within that, one of the beautiful things about it is you know, why do people not travel more? Well, because they have a house they need to take care of and they have a dog and they have this and they have that and they have all that shit they have to deal with, right? Well, if you're hanging out with friends and you're sharing, you know, like, hey, you know, we're going to go to Mexico for a few weeks. Can you watch our dog? That lends itself to the, the travel. So if you can have that kind of a community where people are sharing resources and taking care of each other and you know, yeah. Hey, I'll watch your place. I'll, I'll, we'll put your place on Airbnb while you're gone. Make some money. You know, like there are ways to manage your life so that you can have both. Civilization just comes straight down the middle. The communities happen on the fringes, whether it's wealthy or poor. Like uh, there's this joke we do on the show a lot. It's an Adam Carolla thing, which is rich man, poor man. This idea that rich men and poor men have so much more in common than people in the middle. Yeah. It's true. Um, Neither of them pay taxes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and you can see they have outdoor showers. They sit at the top of a football stadium. All kinds of stuff. You can, yeah. They have they have ten cars. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Nine on blocks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I feel like, for the sake of the book, laying out some of the core arguments in the book for the listeners, could you describe who neo Hobbesians are and and what they represent to you? Well, Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes wrote a book called Leviathan in 1651, where he said, before the advent of the state, life of man was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. So that has become a very famous line in the English language that pretty much everyone's heard. And it's more than that, too. Like, if you study liberal arts and you show up to university, they, like, hand you the book and say, read this chapter. It's foundational. And it's wrong. And it's based upon nothing. It, it, he just, Thomas Hobbes didn't know anything about hunter-gatherers. He didn't know anything about life before the state. And the reason it's so ubiquitous and powerful is that it scratches a deep psychological itch that we have, which is to feel that we live in the best possible time and that we're lucky and that civilization is a process of constant progress, that there's that things are always getting better. And if you believe things are always getting better, then logically we're in the best place at the best time because now is better than before. That feels right. It feels good. But if you step back and look at the evidence, it's not at all clear that that's true. And if you even think about it 
critically, there's no real reason to believe that things are always getting better. Certain things are getting better. Technology's getting more powerful. You know, we can fly in airplanes now and we couldn't before. That's true. Medicine, we can do things we couldn't do before. But as I point out in Civilized to Death, most of the things that modern medicine is partially protecting us from in the case of vaccines or partially treating in the case of dialysis machines or uh, oncology, chemotherapy or surgeries of various kinds. Most of the problems that modern medicine is addressing are caused by civilization. So to say, thank God we have vaccines because all our ancestors died of smallpox is akin to saying, thank God we have seatbelts because all our ancestors died of car crashes. Yeah. There were no cars and there was no smallpox. There was no influenza. There was no cholera. There was no tuberculosis. Like these diseases came from domesticated animals that were living in close proximity to humans, generally in the same house shortly after the advent of agriculture. And they didn't exist for hunter gatherers, nor did heart disease, nor did severe depression, nor did diabetes. Most of the things that we suffer from are caused by civilization. And yet we're constantly being told how lucky we are that civilization has partial antidotes to some of these things. So I look at it and say, well, this is you know, similar to Sex at Dawn. Like, this is not science. This is propaganda. And it's propaganda in support of the status quo. Because every culture wants its denizens to believe that they're lucky. Just like every corporation wants you to think you're part of the family until you're not. They want you to feel like you belong. You're one of us until they decide to get rid of you. Well, it's an extraordinary idea to encounter because it feels like against the soul in some way. And maybe Daniel Quinn, back in the story, B might have pointed this out that our culture, you know, the agrarian totalitarian culture is like uniquely thinking that we're progressing in part probably because a lot of we're made up of these technologies. Because we think technology is advancing, we also think we're advancing along with it. And uh, I remember encountering, like Foucault is the most notable example of an author who like shows you systems of technological power that you've subsumed into your, your soul or your persona and showing right. them that they're not actually natural. Right. And that they're just systems used to like control people at bigger scales, whether it's a prison or whether it's psychology or religion. Religion is a great one. Like, why do you have a confessor? Why do you have to like uh, you sort of externalize a sense of your moral self? Like, this is a very strange idea to people before the confessional was developed or whatever. And um, it's just everywhere. That's the thing. It's like such a. Uh, that's why I'm so happy to have read the book because it's just it's almost unbelievable when you hear the idea to say that we're not progressing as a civilization is, is a heresy. Well, we're progressing toward a precipice. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's the, I say in the book, it's like sometimes it feels like we're progressing the way a disease progresses. Right. You know, It's not necessarily getting better. Things are falling apart. You know, more people are living alone right now than have ever lived alone in the history of our species. And that's extraordinary. 25% of Americans live alone. 
the social isolation, you know, and people really like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg would have you believe that Facebook is all about connecting people and forming communities. And <laughs> but what actually happens, right? What do people actually feel? They feel alone. They feel fragmented. They feel that they're being harvested, you know, their, their data, their attention is being harvested. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you're familiar with Tristan Harris and his, Mm -mm. he's a, he worked at Google. He has a PhD, I think from Stanford, he has a PhD in, in like ethics and computer science. And he was the in-house ethicist at Google for a while. And then he quit because they're, it's totally unethical. He talks about how, you know, there's this ubiquitous idea that technology is neutral. It's just a tool. It can be used for good or evil. His point is, no, it's not. Technology is designed with certain ends in mind. And yes, sometimes it can be co-opted. Sometimes Twitter can be used to organize street rebellions in Libya, for example. But that's not what it's designed for. What it's designed for is to hold your attention from the color that's used in the notification thing 100%. to the lag time to you know when you try to scroll and it how long it takes to refresh there are thousands of psychologists and engineers behind every one of those things who are looking at human behavior how the mind works to hold your attention because the economy that's most relevant right now is the attention economy so this technology is designed to take your attention that's like sucking your blood. I mean, your attention is all you have. Yeah. If you're lucky, you've got 70, 80 years of attention. What are you going to do with it? Well, if they have their way, you're going to spend it looking at your phone. And that's not good for you. That's not good for us. That's not good for society. What's it good for? It's good for this weird super organism. You know, if we talk yeah. to Kevin Kelly, he'll explain in much more detail than I can how this this organism that we're embedded within is sucking our life energy out of us for its own purposes. Speaking of purposes, I had a question I wanted to ask you. What are some things that are taboo in civilization that might make sense for humans? Did I hear you mention Paul Graham the other night at dinner? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say anything at the time, but I think he's a really interesting guy. And he wrote an essay, which you may have read, where he says, you know, we look back in time and we see how wrong humans were. Like, you know, a hundred years ago, women weren't smart enough to vote and black people shouldn't have the same rights as white people and, you know, whatever ridiculousness. How can we look at our own age and figure out what we're wrong about? And it's a great essay. I I forget what the title of it is, but it's online. We'll link to it. Anyway, one of the things he says is that a great place to look for this sort of information is taboos, the things you're not allowed to talk about, the things that if you mention them in front of your friends, you might not be invited back to the party. That's a really good place to look for things that we're totally wrong about because that taboo, that like unmentionableness of it allows it to persist even though it's totally illegitimate. So, you know, 30 years ago, if you had said, you know, I think Catholic priests are probably fucking a lot of kids, you would have been, what? Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Turns out it's true. And the reason it was allowed to be true for centuries is that nobody would say it. Nobody could say it out loud, you know? 
like you mentioned one in the book, for example, yeah. hallucinogens is it's somewhat taboo in society to yeah. say like, I'm a responsible family person and I drop acid on the weekends. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not only taboo, it's highly illegal in most situations. As I point out in the book, still in most states and until recently everywhere in the U.S., you would go to prison for longer for having, you know, a pound of mushrooms than you would for killing someone. Which are items that have been distributed for hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. And and it's interesting to me that almost all societies that have access to psychedelics consider them to be the greatest gift of the gods, except ours, which has, you know, criminalized them beyond murder. What's that tell you? To me, what it says is that we live in a society based on a lie. And so anything that threatens to expose the lie has to be eradicated. Things that are, are taboo, for example, I think pederasty, people who are sexually attracted to kids, they don't choose that. That's a sexual orientation. And rather than, you know, the way the law is in the U.S. right now, if somebody is talking to a psychotherapist and says, I'm sexually attracted to kids, I don't want to hurt anybody, I don't want to do this, but I need your help in, like, you know, working through this, the therapist has to report them to the police, and they go to prison. That's a thought crime, first of all. They've never hurt anyone. Secondly, we should be supporting people who recognize that they have impulses that could hurt other people and are seeking to control those impulses. It's different. In Canada, there are actually hotlines that support that and like, okay, you've got these impulses, like talk to us, we'll help you work it out. So I think there there are things around sexuality that are ridiculous. You know, until 40 years ago, it was considered a psychological disorder to be gay. So now we know that's ridiculous. You mentioned how we medicate kids who don't want to pay attention to school, which is like, why aren't we punishing the teachers who can't earn any attention? (laughs) Well, I I don't blame the teachers necessarily because it's not natural for a fucking seven-year-old primate to be sitting still all day, right? Like, let them run, let them play, let them learn the way they're designed to learn, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's ridiculous that we force kids to ignore their bodies, you know, eat. I'm not hungry. Well, eat anyway. It's 5 p.m. That's when you eat. Go to bed. I'm not tired. Well, go to bed anyway. It's 9 p.m. That's when you sleep. It's like, what? You mentioned also that adolescence is sort of a new phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange concept, adolescence. But so and, black Nirvana t-shirts and pimples and not getting laid and watching MTV. This, <laughs> this well, is... The pimples, yeah, I don't know. And pimples, I think, is more about the Western diet. But yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot around sexuality. I think, as I said earlier, I think questioning ambition is very important, I think, you know, and somewhat taboo. The notion that more money is going to lead to a happier life is very questionable, in my opinion. The idea that, you know, you should serve your country. You know, people who really have power, they don't even think about countries. They don't give a shit about countries. To them, countries are like sports teams. They don't care. Just like players don't care and coaches don't care. People who are in that world, they don't give a shit what team they're playing for. It's just the rubes who care. 
And it's all just a distraction from the reality of what's going on. Frank Zappa said, politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. (laughs) I feel like, so questioning the legitimacy of these things is taboo and difficult, but I think it's essential to finding your way and not getting sucked into somebody else's program. Final question, the hardest one. A lot of people listen to this podcast because they have a kind of an itch. They know they're a little bit weird. They're maybe not sure how weird they're thinking about exploring it. They want to kind of do their own thing. They want to own their own life. So the vast majority of people that listen to this podcast, they don't do it because they like business. They see business as a vehicle to own their own life. Right. So what kind of advice do you have for them? It seems like you figured a lot of this out at a young age. For me, a big part of it was not having kids, you know, because if you have kids, you surrender a lot of your freedom of movement, your ability to adapt. A lot of my life, I was hand to mouth. I would, you know, I'd make 600 bucks in a week teaching English and I'd spend 600 bucks that week on rent and food and doing whatever else I was doing. So I didn't really have a margin. You can't do that with kids. In our society. Yeah, yeah. No, in, in civilized, you know, money-based society. You can't move around all the time. You know, kids want to have friends. They want to be embedded in a community. You can't be like, yeah, now we're going to Singapore for three months and then we're going. I mean, you know, when they're real little, but when they're, you know, eight, 10, 12, I moved a lot as a kid and it hurt. Uh, It was difficult. You know, you're trying to learn to love people and you keep getting pulled away from them. That's hard. But yeah, for me, the, the advice I would give to people is if you don't need to have kids, don't do it because it cuts into your ability to live your life the way you want to. It cuts into your ability to change tracks quickly. It cuts into your ability to live close to the bone uh, for a while, which is often necessary. For me, that was a really important factor. And you know, there are enough kids in the world. There are far too many people in the world. <laughs> so instead of, you know, worrying about do you use straws or not, or, you know, single-use plastic, don't have kids. You don't have kids, your ecological impact on the world is so much better. And uh, so maybe you can slip up in other areas. One personal question I have to ask you. I've always felt uncomfortable in America. Yeah, and I've so I've always too. gone around traveling around and Part of what I thought when I was reading your book is, is America somehow the masthead for whatever civilization means right now in the sense that is the lifestyle there more egregiously wrong than in, and we find in many other countries? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's because it's a new country and because it doesn't have this sort of established historical foundation that corporate power has found it easier to take control of the culture. And so, you know, Walmart can come in and wipe out a town, whereas in Spain, Costco or Walmart wants to come in and they say, no, we don't want you. We like the small shops. They cost more. So what? It keeps people employed. We're all Spanish. We look out for each other. In America, there's no like, we're all looking out for each other. Yeah. Because there's not that culture of, you know, centuries of being 
together and going through things together and developing this way of living together. America's all fragmented, and because it's fragmented, corporate power has taken over the government, taken over basically every aspect of life. We showed up and there's like, there's a, just a bunch of land. And so we kill all the Indians it. and it's ours. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, look, American diet, it's dictated by companies. What's convenient for them? Serving size, bigger, better volume, make more money, you know, industrial food, margarines, great for you. Trust us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, whereas in France, you're not going to like say, yeah, margarine. They're like, We've been eating butter for centuries. Yeah, centuries. We're not making croissants out of margarine. (laughs) Uh, That's it. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this one. We've got a lot more coming down the pike here at the TMBA podcast. If you want to be a part of it, drop us a voicemail, tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. Send me an email with episode ideas or questions, dan at tropicalmba.com. And if you want to leave us your comments on this show, we'll post all the show notes to everything mentioned, including Chris's book over at tropicalmba.com slash Chris Ryan. It was awesome happenstance to be listening to, just to be really enjoying Chris's book and putting it down and realizing he was just a few blocks away. And so uh, it was a cool little happenstance that brought this thing together. I appreciate Chris coming on the show. That is it. Have a great Thursday, a great weekend, and we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.